Hey everybody, welcome back, welcome back. It's episode four, episode four of How's That Day, a culture rundown with Tom and Phil. And I'm going to start this podcast out the exact same way. I've started out the last one, two, three of them with the one question. Tom, how's that day? My favorite part of the day so far was hearing that introduction because it was the old school fail that I love to hear so much. You're gonna shake, you're gonna move. Oh fuck! I put a little, put a little sauce on it. Put a little. Yeah, you did. Little, it was a little saucy. Little, little sex in there in my voice. Just you know. Th- that's like old school twenty-one-year-old Phil strutting down New York City full of confidence. I loved it. Maybe happy. Tom, I need to know how's that day? How is it? Day's good. Uh, had to. It's Wednesday. Had today off. I was just telling Phil off Mike. I woke up at eight a.m. in a fright, thinking I was late for work, and realized I didn't have to go to work. So I went back to bed till eleven. I forgot my equipment uh, for recording this back at my office, and had to drive back there earlier this evening. And on my way to the drive there, I had a weird like brain fart moment where I thought. I was driving to work in the morning. I was like, "Oh man, like it's weird that I'm driving to work in these in these clothes." Uh, like, I, I wonder if they're going to be okay with what I'm wearing. And then I was like, "Oh wait, no, it's 5 p.m. Like, you know, no one's going to be there." So I that was that's also a good feeling. Yeah, yeah, that was a good feeling too. But it was it was just a weird like you know you just get in that mode of like uh, the only reason I take that route is to go to work. So I just had this like yeah. weird day not deja vu but just dumb moment where I forgot where I was. Yeah, I had a similar thing on. I had to work on Sunday, which is unusual for the job I do. Um, And I was driving in, and I normally, I used to stop to get a coffee, but in L.A., it's, like, just so hard to park during rush hour and run in and get out. So I I always, like, prep my coffee the night before, you know, like cold brew machine or pick one up or something. But I forgot on Sunday... And I was driving in, and there's a, a Starbucks drive through and I was like, ah, screw it, I'll get it. And it's normally so packed, and there was no line, there was nobody there but me. And I was like, holy shit, this drive is all right, it's Sunday morning, nobody's on the road. <laughs> yeah, that'll happen. I always want Chick-fil-A on Sundays, and they're, they're closed. Not only that, but I was driving, got the coffee, no traffic anywhere in the back roads and stuff. And then I kept, like, refreshing my podcast app, because I listened to... Um, the Comedy Bang Bang podcast Monday morning, like I started on my drive to work, and I was so mad that it wasn't refreshing. I'm like, did they forget to put an episode up? Nope, it's Sunday. This is I'm just dumb today. And then I was. I was dumb the rest of the day. It was pretty great. Well, God, it's, it's good that we've both been dumb this week, I guess. Yeah, it's a dumb week. Yeah. How's your day, Phil? Oh, my day's good. My day's good. It's been uh, pretty average. Just went to work, came home, uh, worked on a few things today. Nothing serious. Uh, made some... Some boring adult errands involving like dentist appointments and such, you know. So, not a not a typically a, a very exciting day or anything like that. But you know, good day, good day nonetheless. Ate some dinner a little while ago. Watched some Simpsons. I did a um, I, I had a lot of medical phone calls today as well. I had to reroute my new like primary care physician because I got new health insurance this year and. All my meds for my asthma and stuff are all out of whack. So I was on the phone for like 45 minutes today. But that's not... Who cares about our health? That shit's lame. You mentioned you watched The Simpsons, so I gotta ask. Did you watch the latest episode about the Apu controversy? No, man, no. I don't watch new episodes. I'm watching old school episodes. 
Have you heard about that? I've heard about it, but like I, I guess I don't. The, who's watching The Simpsons anymore? I'm surprised anybody was watching that episode to know that that happened. Yeah, well, I, I didn't watch it, but I saw the the blowback about it. So basically, for those who don't know, there was this documentary that came out, I think, a couple of years ago called either The Problem with the Poo or The Trouble with the Poo. Yeah, one and of those. I was flanking. Yeah, the filmmaker, I guess, just interviewed a bunch of men who have or, or actors and voiceover actors, people in the entertainment industry who have just had to deal with kind of the backlash of the Apu stereotype from The Simpsons. And The Simpsons finally addressed it on air, apparently, this week, which led to Lisa Simpson, of all characters, basically saying, like, oh, just deal with it. You know, why are we so politically correct? Which seems so... Seems like something Homer or Bart should say. I don't know why Lisa's saying that. That that almost feels like a betrayal to me. But again, I haven't watched the episode, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Lisa's the liberal, uh, progressive. She's always the smartest, most like caring person on the show. So that's why it would be a betrayal. But not like, do you remember that Malibu Stacy episode? Yeah, of course. During their classic run, I mean, that's that's Lisa Simpson, guys. Come on. Yeah, it's a it's a show that you know. As, I don't know how many. I think it's on season thirty now, and you kind of feel like, guys, I think it's time we wrap this up because I they, they can't possibly have anything left to say, or maybe they do, but you know, I it, it just feels like a show that's run its course. I don't know anyone that still watches it, but I mean, it's still don't get me wrong, one of the greatest shows of all time, and it's important and it has a legacy, and certain runs of that show are some of the best comedy writing of all time, but. Yeah, I, I'd be fine with the show wrapping up. I, I, it's not really making any bold political statements like it used to in its heyday, you know? They are well over 600 episodes at this point. Yeah, you know, and you know, it, it just feels like it's run its course. At least that's how I feel about it. Yeah, uh, there's something comforting about knowing it's around, I guess, because it was such a huge part of my childhood. But I could not tell you the last time I intentionally sat down to watch a new episode. I mean... At least a decade. Well, I've caught some new episodes in the over the last few years at random, and they do generally make me laugh. I will say that about the show. And what I've been doing lately is I activated the FX Now app be, uh, because I wanted to watch Atlanta. And uh, in my search for Atlanta, I discovered they have a whole Simpsons World section where they have literally all 29 seasons of the show uh, spaced out. So I've just been like in seasons four through nine, just kind of bouncing around watching stretches of episodes at, at random. And it's been great lately. Yeah. Well, F FXX to really hype that new station, they did that epic front to back Simpsons marathon that lasted like several days straight. I think it maybe even went over a week straight. I mean, I would have to do the math. I'm not sure, but that was uh, that was fun to tune in every now and then when I was home and just flipping channels, just knowing that the Simpsons were on at that exact moment whenever I wanted. Well, I've said for a while that I wish that there was an app like a Netflix or a Hulu that was gonna take the money to to buy the Simpsons, but I, I didn't realize that FX had it on their app. I don't know how long it's been on there, but it's been a great find for me. So that's been the last week or two. Uh, how that's been my background, uh, what I've been coming home and watching basically in all my free time. There's also that website that just illegally streams Seinfeld 24/7. I don't I actually don't know if it's still around. Maybe it got shut down, but I remember a few years ago when I was on my computer, I I, I found the link to it, I don't know, some like chat board or something probably, and I would just have it on my computer and it just played Seinfeld 
uninterrupted nonstop. It was pretty fantastic. That's pretty cool. I mean, I have Hulu, and they're all in there now, so I, I do watch stretches of Seinfeld like that, but I just have... This was pre-Seinfeld $1 billion Hulu acquisition, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's pretty cool, though. That, like, it's like speaking, uh, Seinfeld radio. Hulu, yeah, exactly. Did you hear about the Spotify-Hulu partnership? I think it just was announced today. Yeah, and I have... I don't know. I guess I need to dig into the details of that, because... I uh, have Hulu and Spotify, but I feel like I have modified versions of both. I have, like, the family package for Spotify because my, like, $15 a month pays for six people or something like that. And for my Hulu, I have the, you know, the advanced, uh, you know, commercial-free package. So I don't know how that jives with this new package deal. Yeah, I haven't looked into it yet, but I just started about that. If you're a Spotify member, you can get Hulu... At an initial price of $0.99. Cents. I mean, I don't know if that's just for like one month or something. But I also have both. I have Spotify Premium and I have Phil's Hulu account. Yeah, I was going to say, you have Hulu, but it's my Hulu, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely your Hulu. And I, I always log on and I see all the names of your daughter and a couple of your sisters who use it. Dude, there's like eight and... people that have that account. There's so many people yeah. on the Hulu account. I'm always tempted to create my own name. <laughs> like... Tom the Mooch or something, but I just I just go on yours and probably mess up your algorithms. I do. I don't care about their algorithms at all. Our like family Netflix and the family like what basically the the trade off is in the family is that my mom has Netflix and pays for that, and everyone kind of hogs that. So our algorithm on Netflix is all screwy. I pay for the Hulu, and everyone kind of shares that. Phil Phil and I used to have a deal where I used his Hulu and he used my HBO Go. But then I guess you got this uh, this rich family friend, and now you don't use my HBO, and I have not stopped using your Hulu. And thank you for that. That's how I watch Battlestar Galactica. That's all right. You know, I I don't mind as long as if it were affecting me, then I would put an end to it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I would uh, just cut you off, cut you out of my life. All right. Well, all right. You ready to dive in for a movie review? Let's do a movie review. All right. This week, Tom and I will be discussing. The God himself, Steven Spielberg's new film, Ready Player One. <laughs> the God himself. He that is. was great. He I is. Love he's, it. Like a, right. he's, like, yes. he's like a film god. Yeah, okay. I like it. That, that explains a lot about us. Continue. All right, well, put a dance. Oh, did I, I'm sorry, did I just hurt your you feelings? Pop my, you popped my balloon. I'm sorry, man. No, it's great. The God himself. All right. All bow down. My name's Wade Watts. My dad picked that name because it sounded like a superhero's alter ego, like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner. But he died when I was a kid, my mom too. And I ended up here. Sitting here in my tiny corner of nowhere. There's nowhere left to go. Nowhere. Except the Oasis. Let's start with Ready Player One. It is uh, Steven Spielberg's God knows how many. I haven't. I didn't count. You know how many movies he's directed? Probably in the 30s or so. Um, that's my well, guess. Well, this, this actually speaks to another episode idea we want to do. Because Phil and I basically originated film bracket stuff, which film Twitter is all over now. And I remember there was a Spielberg one prior to the release of this movie, and I think he's right at 32. This may be 33 when you count up all of his features. Cool, cool. 
All right, so here's the IMDb synopsis. When the creator of a virtual reality world called the Oasis dies, he releases a video in which he challenges all Oasis users to find his Easter egg, which will give the finder his fortune. Tom, Thomas James Bond, what did you think of Ready Player One? Okay, a little background. I read the Ernest Klein novel that the movie's based on um, three-ish years ago. Uh, yeah. based off a friend's recommendation, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I, I liked all the references. I don't, and even in the movie, the thing I'm really kind of ignorant on is all the game references. Like, I picked up a couple of the, the bigger names, I guess, but I think there are a lot of details, both in the book and movie, that just kind of went over my head. But in terms of the story, um, yeah, I thought I, I was a fan of the book. I thought it was really sincere and heartfelt, um, I know it's gotten a lot of shit over the years for kind of just using all of these real world references to tell its story, but I don't know. I thought, I thought it was unique and, um, its heart was in the right place. So I was excited for this movie because of that. And because of my love for Spielberg, the trailer didn't do a ton for me, except for again, some of the, the references, but I thought it would be a fun popcorn film and to, just to wrap up that, I guess my ultimate opinion is that it is super cheesy, kind of forgettable, and uh, pretty fun. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Um, I walked out feeling maybe a little bit more in your department. Like, I was probably, I probably felt like, okay, that was fine. That was okay. But I thought, I think maybe, I remember the drive home. I got in the car and I started thinking about all of it. I was I didn't have any music on. It was just me and my thoughts. I was driving home and like I started thinking about how scenes were and I just really really started to be like, "Oh, well that didn't work, but that's okay cuz it, it was fun." And then I was like, "Oh, well that didn't work either, but you know, it was it was it was fun." And then I yeah, that didn't work either. You know, that that kind of that was really stupid. But you know, the movie was kind of and I just kind of kept like that kept being like that for a while until eventually after like a day or two I realized, like, I, re- I don't think I like the movie very much. I, um, you know, I really don't know how much of it works at all. I, I mean, like, I-, I will say that there are several sequences throughout that I will highlight, and we'll- I'm sure we'll talk about that are grandiose and stylish and really cool and interesting and well-directed. Like, Steven Spielberg is such a good director that even his bad movies or his mediocre-level movies have sequences that are incredible in it because he's such a good director at staging, at pacing, at uh, these, you know, staging a sequ- an action sequence that's fantastic. So even a movie that I, I'm not crazy about, you know, there's probably one or two sequences in it that are probably pretty awesome because he's just that good of a director. So I, that's kind of how I left feeling the movie was like, there's one or two sequences that I will admit are pretty awesome and pretty good, but the rest of the movie I think is very flawed. And the script, I, I, I mostly I would blame the script and what I would call a, a lack of ambition with what the story is about. So, yeah, that's where I stand on the movie, or at least my first experience of watching through it. Interesting, but a failure. What's your favorite extended set piece of The Terminal? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, The Terminal, I, I sent uh, my friend my bottom five uh, Spielbergs not that long ago. So uh, I could pull them up for you if you'd like. I would love if I would love for you to do that if you need a minute. No, I found it. I, I actually another... have already pulled it up since saying that. That's all. All right, let's let's do I it. I was quick draw McGraw on that one. All right, uh, number one 
You'll, you'll, you should know what this one is. Wait, is so is this your least favorite? These are, this is my bottom least? Spielberg. This is my bottom. But is number one like your absolute least favorite or is it your fifth least? All right, uh, yeah, my number one is my absolute least favorite. So I'll, I'll start. Okay, right. so start start with number five. All right, number five, Lost World. I, I It doesn't work as a movie. Like I agree with you. Um, it has a couple nice pieces co- like you were just saying A couple nice pieces. There's a couple cool sequences. But I think in retrospect... Basically, every sequel to Jurassic Park is an absolute failure in my eyes. Like they all kind of lost, kind of suck. Lost World, I loved when I was twelve. I rewatched it two years ago, and it, yeah, I agree, it does not hold up. Number four, Amistad. Um, I, I here, interesting. Amistad is low for me. I think because I knew. I, I think it is in some ways representative of the worst of Spielberg in terms of his uh, serious films. Like, I, I really love a lot of the serious stuff that he's done, but I think it's one of those, let's take a story about a slave uprising and make it the star of it, Matthew McConaughey. You know, like, I, I think a lot yeah. of it is just does, hasn't aged well. I never thought it was a particularly compelling movie. Um, it just, I, yeah, I, it's not something I ever care to revisit. I mean, there's probably something like Always or something like that that other people don't like more. But Amistad was one that I remember as a young kid being like, oh, I didn't like that one. And I was a big fan of Spielberg already as a young kid. Uh, number three, I finally watched it. And man, is it uncomfortable. And that is the BFG. I, th- this movie did not work for me at all. So this this is pretty high, but that's because of recency bias, I'm sure. I just I just I don't know what his plan was here. I just thought it was very uncomfortable. Number two, the terminal. I just have never liked the terminal. I don't like Hanks' performance. I don't like the story. I don't like the romantic subplot. I just I don't like the tone of it. There's just something about the terminal that has never worked for me. Like, oh, isn't this a cute story? I'm like, no, this is a horrifying, horrifying story. <laughs> and it's one of those like uh, where I think Spielberg just kind of approached the material with the wrong attitude. And number one is a personal vendetta. You know, you were there, you saw it. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is number one. I don't know that there's a film I hate more. That is so absurd. I, it's, I, I'm not going to say Crystal Skull is good, but to be like your least favorite movie of all time is just the epitome of nerddom to me. I don't care. I don't, you know, I'll <laughs> die on this hill, man. That movie, I like to, to quickly put it in reference for people, I was more of an Indiana Jones kid than a Star Wars kid. So when Crystal Skull was coming out, I was that was like the way people felt about Phantom Menace is probably the way I feel about Crystal Skull. Like it was just such this like betrayal of what I felt were the core ideals of Indiana Jones. And it felt like such a wrong headed move. And it just it hurt. It hurt so bad. I've only seen I've seen it one and a half times. The the half time was on at the gym. And I remember what I, the thing that stuck out to me the half time I watched it was that I had saved so much of it in my head. Like I can close my eyes and I remember so much of that movie because I hated it so passionately that it like saved and it like downloaded in its entirety into my brain. So I could like read, I could just go back to it. I have to tell this experience really quickly. So crystal skull came out in 2008. Phil and I were living, we had just finished film school for a year and we were living a block away from each other in East Harlem in Spanish Harlem And on 86th Street, there was a movie theater. And the week or two before, I had said all throughout film school that I had, like, my biggest blind spot were the Indiana Jones films. You remember this? Of course, yeah. So when Crystal Skull was about to come out, I finally sat down. I'm like, Phil, you and I, let's watch them together. So for about, there was like a week there 
leading up to the release where Phil came yeah, over. Yeah, like sometime oh, within like five days, we watched the first three. Pretty much like three or four nights in a row, Phil came over and we watched the first three films. And then I think we watched Raiders a second time. We did. on the, We watched yes. Raiders the night. We were going to like a midnight or a late night of Crystal Skull, and we watched Raiders again right before we went. Right, yes, to, to get ourselves pumped up. So that was a really fun experience. So I, I was all hyped. Um, I love those movies, especially the dummy drop in Temple of Doom. Out of you lost your mind. I'll never forget. You lost the, your mind for that stunt. Yeah, I think I rewound it a couple times, like even though I had never seen the movie before. But that was one of my favorite moments in cinema history. So we go to see... Crystal Skull on 86th Street. It's me, Phil, and Phil's old Ohio buddy Jake, who they were they were uh, roommates at the time, and we're all watching it. And I mean, I watched it and I knew it wasn't good, but I didn't hate the thing. I thought it was just kind of like goofy. And we leave the theater, and I could just like feel the energy sitting next to Phil and Jake. They were just not pleased. So we get out onto Third Avenue in 86, and it's like a 15 or 16 block walk back to where we all live. And Phil, just in his struttiest, fast-paced walk that he does, just looks at me and says, That is not Indiana Jones! And just, like, books it up to, towards Spanish Harlem. Like, leaving Dude, I was in mad. the dust. And him, I was mad. Him and Jake are just, like, ranting, talking so fast. They, they're not even aware I'm there anymore. <laughs> they're just so upset. And I remember just being, like, a block behind them, kind of following them, being like, I thought it was all right. I had the most pitiful phone call when I got home that night. I called my buddy back home, who I knew was like a fellow Indiana Jones like nerd. Like him and I had gone to see that Raiders IMAX re-release together, and uh, we were both big fans. And I called him, and I said, "Hey, man, I got bad news. I got really bad news." And he was like, "What?" Like I was like, it was like I would let him know a friend had died, but I was like, "It it sucks, man." He and he just kind of laughed. He was like, "Ha ha, that's funny, man." That's really funny. Like that's a good joke. And I was like, no, no, I'm I'm dead serious. <laughs> it is not. Funny. It is not funny at all. And he was just like, oh no. And yeah, I took it really hard. So you know, that's it's number one with a bullet for me, man. I hate that movie. I, I it's yeah. I don't blame you. Anyway, well, I want to say just based off the top, I don't know what my bottom five Spielberg would be, but. You mentioned McConaughey and Amistad, which I totally forgot about. And he also had that movie Free State of Jones two years ago. Yeah. Which was very similar, right? It was like a a Confederate soldier leading an uprising against the South during the Civil War. Yeah, let's make this movie. Let's make it about Matthew McConaughey, though. He just he wants to be such a, a noble hero. Um, I will say, I think, uh, if I have to pick off the top of my head, my least favorite of his is probably the BFG. The way you responded to Crystal Skull, you know, like 10% of that was how I responded to BFG. That book was huge for me. Um, as a kid, that was like one of my all-time favorite stories when I was a child. So I was so excited that Spielberg and that Roald Dahl book were teaming up, and that movie is is kind of hot garbage. And I think what really upsets me about that movie is it was generally well-received, at least by critics. Was it? Which I don't know why. I, yeah, I'm looking. It's got a 66 Metacritic, so it's like it's positive. Wow. Robbie Collin from The Telegraph gave it a 100 it's a weighty technical accomplishment, the extraordinary detailed motion capture technology alone, which stretches Rylance's human performance to giant-sized proportions, is river-straddling bounds beyond anything you've seen before. Bull shit, Robbie Collin. That CGI is some of the worst I've ever seen in a big-budget movie. It is god-awful. All right. Well, 
I, I agree. I agree completely. I thought it was very ugly. I thought the language and just the look of it was kind of just off-putting, and it just was a, a boring uh, sip where it just kind of never felt like the movie took off. Also, thank you for not putting Hook on your bottom five. That means a lot. Oh, my God. I don't want to go off on too big of a rant, but there's like an age gap between critics, and there's a certain like age difference where you I'll, I'll see critics who are like, you know, Hook is a really terrible movie. And I'll just be like, that's great that you think that, man, but I don't. So, like, I think Hook's a, yeah. I think Hook's a great movie. Like, nothing you can say will convince Hook. me that Hook's a bad movie. Amen, my man. I agree wholeheartedly. But let's let's not be so negative about Spielberg. Spielberg's, as Phil said, a god. He is. And we'd be remiss to forget that. I mean, you know, he only, like, created the modern blockbuster, has created some of the most, like, influential films you know he literally created the entire like pop culture genre that the film ready player one is referencing basically yeah so all right let's get back to ready player one with that in mind so what what do you you're fine with all of the uh the i guess the the beats of the story none of that really bothered you at all or anything like that oh no not at all not at all so (laughs) um i'm curious how you thought about the beats and especially the character stuff having not read the book um okay well one thing i was i was really excited for i'm a big fan of the actress olivia cook who i mentioned in an earlier episode briefly when uh we were both talking about our appreciation for thoroughbreds she was also in bates motel that's where i i um first saw her i think but i was super excited for that relationship between parzival and artemis I think that's the that's the heart of the book. Ultimately, that's what really makes it work beyond all the pop culture stuff and adventure moments. And in this movie, they rush it so quickly; they just completely devalue um, the journey of that relationship. And that, more than anything else, in terms of character issues, is what really made me realize that this shouldn't have been a movie. I don't think there's just too much going on. It's so weird and chaotic. And there are so many important character moments that happen. A needs to go to B all the way down to Z. And there's just way too much happening for one feature film. I think it's, uh, it's, it was a mistake to try to just turn this into one movie. Oh, yeah, I, will, I agree there. That was one thought I had during the first kind of you know, initial reaction to the movie was that this is just so much story that, you know, I, I'm not the guy who actually like champions that everything needs to be a TV show now. Like I'm a movie guy. I, I, I still very much am championing like a, the great cinema going experience. So I don't think everything needs to be a TV show, but this certainly felt like something where it's a very rich world. And I think maybe because it feels like such a rich world that that is part of my issue with the movie is that so much feels so unexplored by the film that, I I can't help but feeling very underwhelmed because it's almost like you're given this world, this setup, uh, these ideas where you can not only make an action-packed adventure movie, but you could still make some comments on, you know, pop culture. You could make some comments on uh, gaming and avatars and you know the business class of people that are running these these huge, massive things. We're, We're we're talking on the same day that. Facebook founders, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is testifying in front of Congress, you know. So these, like, massive people who are in charge of these giant ecosystems online that we're a part of, like... And it's a movie that feels ripe with all these ideas, but then it's just, like, A, not going to explore any of those, 
and then B, kind of wrap it around a story that is ultimately very unsatisfying. I think the end of this movie is almost offensive in how they decide to wrap up the story. And it's also crammed with a, a, a love story that absolutely sucks and also not just on a like writing level, but sucks kind of on just like a on a politically correct like old school level. It just feels like a movie for maybe I would have liked it when I was a 13 year old boy, but it feels like a movie for, you know, 13 year old boys. The Oasis was the brainchild of James Halliday. Hello, if you're watching this, I'm dead. I created a hidden object, an Easter egg. The first person to find the egg will inherit half a trillion dollars and total control of the Oasis itself. Who is this Parzival, and how the hell is he winning? Find him. Let's get into some spoiler territory because you say the ending is almost offensive. Yeah. Can you explain that? All right. Well, spoiler major major spoiler cuz I'm I'm literally about to talk about the last like minute of the movie. So, after this kid, so all right, so here's the setup for the movie, by the way, which is also it's I find very a little silly. You have this kid the the, the whole thing is Here's this genius billionaire who set up this entire game for everyone to solve. And eventually, as you make your way through it, you realize that the way he wants you to solve it, or the only way you can solve it, is that you have to, like, freakishly study the details of his his own life. Like, so the, the way to, like, become the head of this company is not through, like, some great skill or, like, proving yourself to be, like, some honorable person. It's more for, like, your knowledge or your deep-dive knowledge into this man's very, very personal like emotional history so it's not like really a you know so he's kind of leaving it in the hands of his entire company and this entire ecosystem in the hands of whoever just knows his diary the best so that's a little strange to me but anyway so you finally get to the end and here's this character who is you know grown up in the stacks which is like the poor part of town and his friends are part of this quote-unquote rebellion and you know they're gonna change everything and so when they finally get to the end and save the day and take over the corporation, all they decide to do is take two Tuesdays and Thursdays off and, you know, tell people to go outside a little bit more. Like, there's nothing about, like, oh, we, you know, we changed the stacks. We made sure everyone, whatever. We, like, changed the way that, uh, you know, people interacted with this uh, software. We changed this. We Like, we made the world a better place, or we dissolved it all because we wanted everyone to go offline. Like, nothing. It's like, oh, you know, like, now I'm rich, and I'm in charge of everything, and I'm just going to keep everything status quo, except for, like, we're going to take a couple days off now. Like, it's just, it's just, like, I don't know. For me, it just did not work at all. That's actually interesting, really interesting to me, because I, I see your point, but I don't know if that's what the movie was about. Yeah, like this is very much a case. I will, and we can talk about this. This is very much a case of me wanting the movie to do to be a different movie. Like, right. it, it, I I, I want to be very clear about this. The movie that uh, Steven Spielberg apparently introduced this this movie uh, in front of South by Southwest audiences and introduced it by saying, "This is not a film. This is a movie." Like, which I I think is a bit ridiculous yes it's it's a bit especially coming from someone like him who has spent his entire career proving that you can make smart blockbusters 
You know, that, that making a, a quote-unquote film and a quote-unquote movie are not mutually exclusive, that you can have smart genre adult popcorn movies, you know? Like, and I, I'm not quite sure why he seems to have taken this defensive stance about, like, hey, this movie's stupid, and it, it shouldn't matter because it wants to be stupid. And I guess I was kind of watching it like, man, I really wish I would have gotten the smart, the smarter, more subversive movie version of this story. Yeah, I... I... I hear you, but I also that's obviously not what the movie is. I don't think that's what the book is either. And um you know what's really fascinating though? I have my own criticisms about the way the movie wraps up, uh, but for different reasons. So it's actually kind of fitting that you called Spielberg a god because what they have to do in this story to win the adventure is they have to treat this creator like a deity, like he's this godlike person that people obsess over and worship, and they're in awe of when he appears. And he even has basically resurrected himself after death, where inside the oasis, he can converse with people in real time, as if he was still around, you know. Um, it's very, like, religious worship the way people react to what goes on inside the oasis, which is a pure fantasy. So I like the message of, you know, take Tuesdays and Thursdays off, live your life. We were never trying to fix the world. But I think the movie is maybe not as self-aware as it wants to say it is at the end about the the problematic nature of, like, pure fanboy worship and engrossing yourselves entirely in the lives of other people's creations instead of doing something yourself, you know? Like the... The Star Wars adults who just lose their fucking minds over every new thing that happens in that universe as if they own it. And, like, the, the fans own things that artists make to a point, but you, you also have to lead your own life. And I think the movie was trying to get there at the end, but it just doesn't. I think it it just acts like it did at the end of the movie, but it really didn't, you know? Yeah, I guess my biggest issue with it is I, I feel like had it, taken more chances in terms of the story and what it was going to do i think it would have had more stakes um i think this movie has a real stake problem um and this is an issue i have with a lot of virtual reality set movies or robot driven stories especially is i have have kind of an empathy problem in those stories and so a movie like this I, i i think he did a very poor job, and this is where I think like having a mini series would be great in terms of setting up the entire world. Because I didn't quite understand the stakes or or what was at stake for getting this company. Because like the way the movie kind of positions it is, or in the early days, it's just well, I want to you know live a better life, so I want to you know win this contest, which is cool. But you know, like it's not until later in the movie when they kill his aunt and uncle or whoever that guy, her aunt and her boyfriend. You know, uh, where he like feels like he has some personal stake, but that scene and I thought was almost laughable because he mourns her for I think no scene at all. I don't think there's a single moment yes. where he's yes. upset about it, and yeah, it's it's just not something the movie takes seriously. And I don't like I thought the stacks were a cool idea, but I don't understand like what makes this lead character exceptional. Like, because as far as I can understand, like he is. The only thing exceptional about him is that the movie has told us that he is the main character. Because otherwise, I just thought the main guy, just uh, Ty Sheridan is the actor's name. The character's name is a very comic book-y uh, Wade Watts. And 
you know, I just thought Wade was kind of a, a nobody and I don't know, like a lot of the movie just didn't really stand out to me in ways that I think a movie like this could. Well, he is a nobody, but what separates him is really the attention to detail that he puts into the world and to the creator, like the worship that he puts into him. He mentions how he's the only, uh, the creator of the Oasis formed this, made this personal library of everything that mattered to him that you can go visit. And when he first died and the, um, the Easter egg hunt was on, you know, that place was overflowing with people doing research. And then as time went on and no one could find the first clue, it died off, but he was the one who stayed like he persisted. He kept trying, he kept trying and that's what separates him. But that's not really cinematic or endearing. It's kind of just, it's kind of yeah. just sad. Well, I mean like, all right. So like, I guess like people's life within the games I found to be sort of, unsatisfactory in terms of like the way they explain the world. Like one, I haven't read the book, but one thing I know about the book that people have told me is that in the book, like everyone does everything in their life in the Oasis. Like kids go to school in the Oasis. They like, you know, like they spend literally all their time. They, they work their jobs in the Oasis. Like that is where you spend your entire life. And I wish the movie had done a little bit more of that to establish. I think just a little bit more establishing that would kind of give you a sense of just how much the world is reliant on this software and how much the world. I, I wish he would have made the world of the stacks seem a bit more run down or seem a bit worse off where like there was no no life outside of this software. You know, like outside of like. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. First off, the place is a dump. Second off, there. I mean, I don't the know how they accomplish like that. Dump, but I mean, like, I don't. Is yeah, that... and 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 that opening shot of him climbing down to get onto the ground level, you pass by everybody who's plugged into the oasis and their little trailer things. Like everybody is hooked up to it. Yeah, but I guess there's I... like one. There, I think it's just his aunt or somebody who's like cooking sausages but pretty much everyone is logged in and the only real world stuff you kind of see is towards the end when the real world stakes have been implicated he's on the run with his group and the most real world stuff you see by far is from the main villain who clearly doesn't give a shit about the oasis he just wants the power that it would bring you know and i I don't think you're wrong necessarily but again i think it's just a problem of the only way they solve that is with even more exposition which there's already a ton of or yeah just just maybe try to make it a trilogy or a mini series for HBO or something like that. Yeah, maybe the, I guess like I, I just felt like when I was going back to what I was saying about stakes, like if they made it clear that like when you died in the away, they, they say when you die in the oasis, you know, you have to start over. Um, and I guess they tried to do that with his girl or his, his aunt's aunt's, uh, bro- boyfriend, I guess they tried to do it with him in terms of like you know how you can get addicted and lose your lose a lot of your possessions and stuff. But yeah, I wish they would have made it more clear that like how much was at risk if if you died. Like I didn't feel like anybody was ever truly at risk in there because it was their like avatars that were you know kind of going along. And I I have the same problem with Westworld. I don't I can't remember if you'd watch season one of Westworld, but I have. all right, well like Westworld is about a lot of the main characters are robots and their days are like very repetitive and they're tortured and they're beaten and they're just kind of reprogrammed and reset. And then the next day they go through it all again. And you're supposed to sympathize with that when you're watching the show, but there's a part of me that just like, can't do that. I'm just like, well, that's just a pro, you know, that's a robot character, you know, like they're just going to be reset. Like for me, the stakes are very low when something bad is happening to them. Like I don't get as invested because I'm like, well, you know, that, that cut 
is just going to be repaired the next day. So it's not as it's not as brutal for me to watch it. And I had that I had the same kind of issue here making that leap with some of the stakes, especially towards the end. I, I don't really agree with what you're saying about Westworld, but I do in with Ready Player One. I think you're right. It um the final battle where all the Sixers, the underlings who work for the bad guy, are just going into battle and trying to, you know, preserve this force field thing or whatever that TJ Miller, that psycho, has found and they keep dying and another guy just hops in a seat like that's when you die your seat goes red and in the real world the guy just is like oh shit i died he just stands up and another guy takes his place it really does kill a lot of the tension but can we is there anything you liked can we get a little positive yeah yeah i'll get some positive (laughs) i I was gonna say you know a lot of it didn't work for me one more thing i will say negatively is especially that i think was a big failure with the olivia cook stuff is i wish olivia cook would have been the, the star of the movie not ty sheridan um, Olivia mm-hmm. Cook is just such a more, or at least her character in this movie. I do like Ty Sheridan in other movies, but yeah, he's great. Yeah, I, I don't want to diss Ty Sheridan too much, but he, the character, just for me, was a wet blanket here. Yeah. The but the Olivia Cook, I wish would have been the actual star because the uh, Olivia Cook's she's got real presence and a real just she really stands out on screen, and so I really wish we would have gotten even more of her. But early in the movie, like when they're hooking up, you know, it's that whole like. Oh, I, uh, you know, you won't like me when you see me. You'll be disappointed. And then he finally sees her, and it's Olivia Cook, and it's like, okay, uh, and you know, sorry, you're disappointed, buddy. But in, and it's, yeah, it's, it's supposed she, to be because she, she has that has scar like, or that uh, birthmark. I mean, not even a scar. Yeah. She has a birthmark. That's that's supposed to be what's so horrifying. Yeah, that's the she's all that syndrome right there. Like, oh, I'm Rachel Lee Cook, but I'm not hot. Yeah, so, but anyway, so I did really like Olivia Cook in the movie. I I wish she would have been the star. I did really, the third problem or uh, whatever you want to call it, the third key that they have to get after with the whole, like, battle, I thought that was the most boring part of the movie, but I did actually enjoy the race car stuff. I thought the racetrack at the beginning was awesome. I really liked, the you know, the design of it, the intensity. It reminded me of the opening of Speed Racer, which I know we're both big fans of. Uh, you more so than me, but we are both big fans of. And I was really into it at that point. Uh, for me, I just thought the, the movie in retrospect was lacking during the actual experience of watching it. I did actually think it was a pretty quick, easy watch. I, I, I liked a lot of the... I especially liked the second key. You know, I, I guess we're talking spoilers, so I guess we'll just say the Shining sequence. I thought that was awesome. And that was where the movie felt the most nerdy I like in terms of references I want I you know not to keep harping on everything that disappointed me about the movie but you know most of the references too late most of the references in this movie are like passing references like like it's like oh he literally just walked by a thing that you might like it's not like they invest any time or give any meaning to most of these references so I was glad when the movie stopped and kind of really invested in one of those references. And it was something that I know for a fact is very important to Spielberg uh, with The Shining because I know The Shining is one of his favorite films of all time. It's the movie that he met Kubrick on um, because the sets, the the hotel set was what it was originally when that was being torn down, that was going to be built up for the Raiders of the Lost Ark set, the Boulder set. So Spielberg went to go look at the sets and that's when he met Kubrick for the first time. So I know that The Shining holds a very special place in his heart. 
And so like that whole sequence I thought was really cool and fun and played with the iconography of the stuff and all that was sweet. So, and I, and I did really like the animation. I, I will say that for how much of this movie is animated, I was not really taken out of it at all, but I am glad that I saw it in 2d and I didn't go to see it in like 3d or anything. Yeah. I also saw it in 2d. I agree. The, the effects are really, really good. The opposite of the BFG. And I completely agree. I thought the car chase was really fun. So the, um, the challenges are completely different than they are in the book. I actually thought they did a really good job of adapting them to make them more cinematic. Uh, especially those first two. The car chase is really fun. I love me some King Kong. So that was a real cheat. And yeah, we got to talk about it a little bit. Because even though I have a major problem with the goal of the second key, that whole shining sequence was by far my favorite part of the movie. I was just overjoyed. I thought that was so... Not just the references and, like, being in the, sh- the Overlook Hotel again in a movie on the big screen. That in and of itself was kind of a thrill. But the way they set it up with um, Parsifal's buddy, Ake, who is afraid of scary movies, and they get into the Overlook and he's terrified, and he sees the two twins and tells them to run away because it's scary in here, and then he somehow manages to get his way into room 237... And just all that stuff, if you're a big fan of the movie, were such a treat. But uh, there's a ugh, really creepy thing with Halliday's character where he's locked this woman that he loves <laughs> inside this zombie-filled ballroom. <laughs> like, yeah. she's She's been in there for, I, I think it's uh, it's like five-plus years, right? Until someone figures out the first key and the, the story it is It is just like a digital you know projection of her it's not really her okay i get it you don't have empathy for no no no. i'm just saying like i I, no no no. i'm just saying like in his defense he didn't actually trap her there that's all i'm saying no but she she seems to show genuine relief that someone figured it out you know no don't get me wrong i think mark rylands is a monster in this movie he's also my favorite part of the movie is he i was gonna ask you about like did his performance work for you it it did his performance totally worked for me i thought he was very very funny and i think that character needed to be funny because he is kind of such a a monster of a person (laughs) when you really think about it yeah that um his his like nerdy shy i don't want to say charm but his his delivery, uh, I thought, was really good. I thought he did a great job. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I didn't think he was doing a very good job when I was first watching the movie. I'll admit that. Um, during the, In the theater, I was kind of anti his performance. And I was kind of like, did you just cast Mark Rylance because you promised to cast Mark Rylance in, like, almost all your movies from here on out, you know? like I, Well, no. the um, Steven Spielberg tried to get Gene Wilder for that role. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I heard that, I heard that. But uh, yeah. um, I think Gene Wilder was, like, pretty late in life at that point. I don't I don't know. Yeah, he d- he declined. It wasn't because he died. He Gene Wilder said, no, thank you, but no thank you. Well, that's good. Um, I mean, like, because he did die, you know, somewhat short after, so I'm glad. Yeah, you know. I, I think during development he passed away. Yeah, yeah, so anyway, so, I mean, in retrospect, I can kind of see that what Rylance is doing is kind of a more, like, someone who probably has some kind of like Asperger's or something like that, who like really does genuinely have trouble socializing and is more awkward. So I, I think I, what I initially took as this is just Rylands who doesn't know how to play a dork. I, I can now kind of see in retrospect that, Oh, he's playing it awkward on purpose and he's playing that, you know, that's a choice. And so I, you know, I do think the performance is more interesting in those respects, but I do, you know, the whole premise of the movie is based on 
this character's like love for 80s stuff, you know? So, you know, when he was a kid, he was locked in his room and he loved all this 80s, you know, pop culture. And I think that's the premise of the movie is that like this world has been built and designed because of his love for this stuff. I guess I just wish that there had been a character who could acknowledge that. Like all the characters in this movie seem to like really love 80s culture too. And I wish there was just one character who would have been like, man, like I really hate all this shit, but I have to learn it so that I can win this game. You know, like I wish there was just a little bit more of like a self-referential thing or at least a little bit more like antagonism towards that character. Yeah. And I think that's where like what I was saying about the ending of the movie where they try to they try to cheat the ending to have more of a message about the problematic nature of extreme fandom. I think that would have been a great addition. You know, that really would have shed some light and like open the conversation a little bit more. Um, I, I do think. Mark Rylance, who plays Halliday, the the creator, I think his performance is really good because it puts a real layer of tragedy and empathy towards his character. Like, he's not just some guy who... It's not that he just loved 80s culture. I feel like I really get the sense that he had nothing else, you know? Yeah. Like, that was his only means of happiness, was that. And but the whole movie is the key to understanding him that he was in love. I'm genuinely confused about this. Is it that he was in love with Simon Pegg's wife or like the woman he loved Simon Pegg then and like didn't know that and ended up marrying her? What was it? I, I wasn't sure. Yeah. In the movie, I think it's that he he went on a one date with this woman, um, never followed up on it. And Ogden, Simon Pegg's character, ends up marrying her and he just regrets not pursuing her. I guess. Okay. I I wish they explained that a little bit more, but I also got the impression that he's probably a guy who like never really went on a date before, so you know, it's that first time infatuation, so it's not true love or anything like that. I think it's more I think it's more infatuation and obsession, which kind of ties into the the themes of the movie, obviously. Yeah. You know, it there's there's a lot there there's a lot wrong with it, but again, I don't think I agree with Spielberg, even though to say it's a movie, not a film, is kind of a dickhead comment. It's, uh, he is also, at the same time, kind of right. Like, it's not really... Whatever opportunity they had to really tackle some issues seriously, they just kind of punt on. And I think it really is meant to ultimately be enjoyed as just, like, a nerdy experience. Um, the Shining thing, again, not something that was in the book. So when that popped up, I was thrilled. Like, I, that was... I feel like that was made for me. I was so happy watching that in the theater. And so there's a lot of stuff like that that I think people can get enjoyment out of. But yeah, it's not like a great film or anything. Yeah. So, you know, that's basically where I stand on the movie. I, you know, I do think it is fun. And, you know, it's well built. There's well paced action scenes. They're well shot. You know, like Spielberg can do that stuff in his sleep. So, you know, I don't want to, like, say that this was a deeply unpleasant experience. And it did, you know, if anything, I have frustration about it because it feels like it's such a rich world that like could have done a lot with. And I, it, my frustration is just that I wish he had taken a few more steps, like, and not settled as much for just being a fun adventure movie. So like, but that doesn't mean that it's not to take away from the fun adventure movie that kind of is still in here. Like, I think if I were, you know, a 12 year old boy, I would have probably, you know, really loved this movie. So, you know, I, and I wouldn't like, tell other people to not go see it because i think general audiences would probably really enjoy it as well i also think most people us included would not be analyzing it this much if it wasn't steven spielberg directing that's true like you know, i was thinking he's just such a major filmmaker that anything that he comes out with we're gonna really kind of tackle and consider 
And if this was like, you know, Christopher Columbus making Ready Player One, I would have probably talked about it for five minutes like I did Pacific Rim 2, you know? Exactly. And I, I, I was thinking about that when I was watching or when I was thinking about the movie, what you said in our conversation about how you view different films through a different prism, depending on the filmmaker, depending on the genre, what the goals of that film are. And like you said, had it been a Christopher Columbus film, I, I might have been like, oh, that was a slight but pretty fun adventure movie. But like when it is Steven Spielberg, that's when I kind of like, you know, get to that place of like, oh, I expect more out of you. Like if you're going to tackle this thing that deals so much with your own legacy and deals so much with pop culture generally, like I, I want you to like really bite into it and kind of be the Steven Spielberg that made AI or Minority Report or whatever, like tackling this movie, not, you know, the one that made you know, Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls or whatever it is. Yeah. Ultimately, this movie gave huge props to King Kong, The Shining, and Back to the Future and Robert Zemeckis. So I will never I will never hate you, Ready Player One. Yeah, I don't hate this movie. I, I, I feel like I'm frustrated by it because I, I think there's so much potential here for it to be a fucking awesome movie. But, you know, for what it is, like, it is pretty enjoyable. There are plenty of things that I like about it. I wouldn't have a problem. Like, if it was on TV, I, I would watch it again. Some other quick things that I did like, I really, uh, you know, I'm not the world's biggest T.J. Miller fan, but I actually thought the design of his character was pr- pretty cool. The Yeah, he was, um, he had a couple moments of like... I don't know about him as kid, I just like the look of his character, that's really all I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like his, no, he, his, he, character, he his character was okay, I wish they had like pushed his douchebaggery a bit more, you know, I like, I feel like he should have been a bit more hateful. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was a good time, and you know, it's probably in the middle pack somewhere for me with this with Spielberg rankings. You know, but we're gonna get another. We're gonna get like five more Spielbergs in the next like two years. So you know, this is just a a blip on the filmography that we'll you know move on from. Spielberg, you are still the king of the blockbuster. Don't worry, you made Jaws and Jurassic Park. You're you're good forever. I have doubts about myself uh, in both worlds, thinking that you can't pull it off. Yeah, I, I, every movie I, I, I make, at every movie I start, I don't think I can pull it off. When you go onto a set mm-hmm. in the morning for a movie, you nervous? Yeah, every morning. Yeah. I, it, it's, it's the same feeling I get going to work every morning is the feeling I got going to school every day. Mm-hmm. Being a bit of an outsider and not being normal and not quite getting good grades and not being able to compete. And I, my tummy is spilkes, my mom would call it. You know, I'd have before school every day, and I, I, I feel that when I make movies, too. But you're better at this than you were in school. Oh, damn, damn straight. The fact that he's in his 70s and can direct Ready Player One and The Post in the same year, you know, is, you know, really speaks to just how talented he is. Like, even though I think you and I are both kind of, like, lukewarm on both movies, I would say that, you know, generally, that's still, he can still direct the fuck out of a movie. And, like, his yeah. technical <laughs> not, skills are unmatched. Not only that he made them in the same year... Excuse me. He made the post while he was just waiting for the visual effects team on Ready Player One. Yeah, so he was like, just oh, bored. This, this is going to take a long time. This is like fifteen hundred effects shots. I'll just go make a prestige drama with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep that gets nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. Why not? Yeah, like I feel like it's one of those. He's such an underrated filmmaker at this point, which uh, which is strange because he's the biggest filmmaker of all time. But he makes these movies that I think are so. S- his style is kind of so simple and elegant and old school in a way that, you know, if you watch classic Hollywood is much more prevalent back then in terms of the way he shoots things or frames things. He's just an old school filmmaker that makes 
compulsively watchable things. Even if the scripts don't 100% work every time, like the movies themselves are almost always going to be an easy watch because he's such a talented director and such a skilled craftsman. Yeah, I wonder about that in terms of the younger generation of film fans, like kids who are in high school and contemplating going to college for filmmaking or film history or whatever. So we... Spielberg, obviously, his heyday is, you know, a 20-year period, probably from, like, 75 to 93, I guess. But then he also had, you know, Saving Private Ryan and Minority Poor later and stuff. Like, he's done a lot of great movies. But we came of age, like, we were the perfect age to go see Jurassic Park in theaters, you know, as Yeah, I was seven, so. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if you're 15 now, right? That means when you were seven years old, you went and saw... War Horror. I mean, you also saw The Adventures of Tintin, which I think is a great movie. I love Tintin. But I saw that I don't, I don't on know. Shrooms less than a few years ago, and it was great. Yeah, that's. I think that's. Well, honestly, I think that's one of his best adventure films ever. I think it's really, really underrated. Um, I'm and, I'm not that high on it, but I think there's some some very positive aspects to it. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. I I hope uh, I hope he still has the love of the kids in the younger generation because he has made multiple a plus movies in his career. Well, his name's as a producer on a lot of stuff. And I think people are still familiar with his name and, you know, stuff he's done. The Jurassic park name, I think lives on that movies on TV constantly. I, I think that there are parents who are showing kids something like that. I think jaws and Indiana Jones are still very much a part of the pop culture lexicon. Even if, Kids haven't seen all four Indiana Jones movies. I feel like they still know who that is. So, well, you have a preteen daughter. What what has she seen? Oh, I mean, but you know, I'm her father. She's seen all of it. <laughs> Fair enough. What does she like? Well, like, what's her? What are some of her favorite? I don't take that into movies? account. So, um, you don't care what she says. You're just like just sit here and she, watch it and then leave me alone. Basically, yeah. No. Um, okay. <laughs> um, it, you know what was surprising to me about like the Indiana Jones and the Star Wars movies was they had been spoiled for her almost completely by the Lego video games because the Lego video games like are basically plot point for plot point recreations of the movies like the adventures that you go on so like we'd be watching Empire Strikes Back and she's like oh I know that this isn't a meteor like that it's a big monster's mouth I was like oh well fuck so like all these like major things from these movies like Luke I'm your father all that stuff has made so much it had made its way so much into the pop culture lexicon that I feel like none of it was surprising for her in a way. And she seemed a little kind of like expect, she expected a lot of it to happen. She's like, Oh yeah, I know that this happens. And well, the, uh, the, uh, the line actually isn't Luke. I'm your father. It's no, I'm your father. That's a common misconception, but whatever. No big deal. Ready player one forever. Okay. And so, you know what I'm talking about, but there was that. I'm, um, I'm, I'm so sorry to not just to you, but to everybody. Well, I'm, sorry. No, I'm sorry for everybody. Fuck everybody else. But you know, the, the I think she sh- I think she really responded to Raiders of the Lost Ark because I think everybody does. Um, my my main memory of showing her Raiders of the Lost Ark was that she was maybe eight or nine. I was she was pretty young, and I realized that she didn't understand what a Nazi was. So I was like, "Oh yeah, the Nazis, oh, the Nazis yeah. are the bad guys in this." And she's like, "I don't know what a Nazi is." And I was like, "You know, like they're like Hitler's henchmen." She's like, "I don't know who Hitler was." And suddenly you find yourself in this situation where you want to watch Indiana Jones, but you have to like explain Hitler all of a sudden. And so that was my main memory was sitting there talking to her and be like, well, there was this guy with a mustache, 
you know, and kind of d- diving into that. That's whole how you introduce him. Yeah, you know, that's that's who he is to me. He was there was this guy. He wanted to be a painter. He had a mustache. You know, he got a few people together. <laughs> there was this frustrated artist with a haunted mustache that led him to uh, massacre millions of people. Yeah, so I, I did a really quick summation, uh, you know, like that, and then we watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I think she had a great time. Cool. But you know, Jaws, I Jaws, hundred percent worked. And I will also say Jurassic Park. I screened that in uh, a theater for her and my sisters, like in the summer before Jurassic World came out. And so they were well prepped for it. And we saw Jurassic Park, and I loved showing that in a theater to them because I knew when all the big jumps were coming and just kind of like watch watching them watch it and seeing how much some of those massive jumps still worked. Like there were the that push in on Laura Durham when they, when they just get the power back on and she's like, we're back in business. And then, and then the Raptor head comes like, you know, banging out from behind her. I looked over like all three of them just like exploded out of their chairs and like popcorn was in the air. I was like, yes, this movie still works like fucking gangbusters. And it did. They like ate it up. It's such a great movie. That movie's flawless. I've seen it a couple times in theaters when it gets re-released and it's perfect. It's a perfect movie. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. So that that one's definitely a top five Spielberg for me. You know, one movie that I, I, I've... With this coming out, there's been a lot of Spielberg retrospectives, and I've seen a lot of, I would say, a lack of love for Schindler's List, which has kind of made me kind of reappreciate Schindler's List in this way of, like, the reason it doesn't make people's top fives is because no one ever wants to watch it again. Like, every, yeah. everyone's just like, well, I never want to see that ever again. And in a way... Exactly. I, That's 100% the reason. Yeah, and I think that, that, in a way, that speaks to the power, like, that someone like Steven Spielberg can make such great popcorn stuff like a Jaws or a Raiders, uh, you know, and give us stuff like that. But he also is responsible for something like the opening of Saving Private Ryan, which everyone, I think, would put in the top one or two most important or best war uh, sequences of all time. And then he also gives Schindler's List, a movie about that's so dark that people, it's so hard to watch more than once. Like that once you take it in, it's so heavy and like deals. So and it shows you so kind of how brutal it was that like, I think it's such a great thing that there's, there is this filmmaker who can do the popcorn, but still also make a, a film that's as powerful as Schindler's List. That's so powerful that people don't even rank it highly because they're so like scared of it. I mean, we talk about Ready Player One in the post being released months apart. He he put out Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year. In- insane. That's like the craziest thing any filmmaker has ever done. That's absurd. And I know like they're not obviously that's like the kind of peak, but he also did Catch Me If You Can and Minority Report in the same year, which are I think two great films as well. I agree. Not I'm not as high as on Minority Report as most people, but I understand its love. And he also, 2005, this is one where people probably don't agree with me, but he came out with Munich, which I think is really solid, and War of the Worlds, which I think is one of his most underrated blockbusters. I Yeah, I think both films have third act problems. Yeah. You know, both very good films. Uh, very solid. War of the Worlds, I, can, War of the Worlds I, I could put on every year easily and watch it. I need to rewatch that one. I, I think Munich has kind of aged poorly, but I'd like to rewatch it. Um, in my head, it's aged poorly. Let's do an episode, War of the Worlds. We can do it like our own commentary on it or something. Yeah, we can do we or yeah. like a you know a 
uh, a top five underrated Spielbergs or underseen Spielbergs. I don't know. We can do something. Yeah, War of the Worlds would be number one. Spoiler. Yeah, right. like I don't want to do the top five Sp- Spielberg because like I, then we'll just be talking about you know Jaws and Raiders and all that stuff that everybody always talks about. Like so, let's talk about some like hidden gems from Spielberg's filmography that there doesn't get enough love maybe on a future episode. Yeah, fin- to be continued. Yeah, finally get that AI talk in that everybody out there is craving. Hell yeah! Oh, for sh- they should if they're not. You don't realize it, but you need it. All right. So, like that, I'm I'm good. If you're good on Ready Player One, is there anything else you want to say about it? No, nah, man. Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. All right. Hey, did you have any rants to end this week, or any recommendations? Anything you wanted to wrap the show up with this week? Yeah, I, I have a, a little a little closing segment. This one's positive. Um, as you know, I'm a I'm a giant basketball fan. I love the NBA. There was, in my opinion, the greatest story of the NBA season happened just last night. Um, the second to last night of the season. This guy, his name's Andre Ingram. He is RH. He was born in November of 85. He was called up to play for the Lakers last night. It was his professional debut as a rookie. He had been in the D league of the NBA, which is basically like their pro minor league team. And he'd been overseas for a couple years since 2007, never quit, never stopped trying to make it. He said his dream the whole time was that he thought he would make the NBA and it was frustrating. And at a couple points he wanted to quit, but he kept persevering, made his debut last night and just dominated. He put up 19 points on six of eight shooting, hit four threes at the Staples center with magic Johnson watching. And he was getting MVP chance from the crowd. His wife was there. She was crying on TV. It was just, it was the greatest thing I've seen in a very long time. Um, it was actually also just happened to be a nationally televised game on TNT. So afterwards, you know, they have the inside the NBA show with Charles Barkley and Shaq and Ernie Johnson and Kenny Smith. And they interviewed him post game. He was like, he got the game ball from the coach, Luke Walton. It was just the coolest story. It, it, It honestly made me emotional. It like, it speaks to perseverance that people have. I mean, there are so countless guys who were probably in that league throughout all the years he was there and left and came back, who just quit because they realized, like, I, I can't do it. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. But he he never did. And he got his moment, and he brought it. Like, he was ready. It was just incredible to watch, man. I, I was just binging all of this last night and this morning and just getting goosebumps just watching everything. It was it was one of the coolest things I've seen on, in basketball. Awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Props to you, Andre Ingram. That's really cool. The uh, yeah, especially because you got some bad uh, basketball news this week. Yeah, well, uh, Kyrie Irving's out for the year. That's a bummer. Yeah, is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Um, I don't know. Celtics have had a great year. They their two best players, Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving, played a combined 60 games out of a possible 160, and they're still the number two seed in the East. It sucks, man, but they'll, uh, they'll they got some young kids. They got a bright future still, and I'm ex- the playoffs start this weekend. I will definitely be watching at least for a little bit before I leave uh, L.A. for a few weeks. But yeah, that go Celts and Andre Ingram, you kick ass. Congratulations, bro. That's cool. Uh, my like little rant uh, was actually we actually covered it. Uh, it kind of came up naturally at the beginning of the show. I was going to talk about my love of the Simpsons and kind of rediscovering the early seasons of the Simpsons and. Just how much smarter 
that show is and how much better it is than anything like animated on. Well, I don't want to say anything animated currently. You know, there's things I know that there's some smart animated stuff out there that I'm not watching. And there's some really Rick and Morty. Cr- well, I'm, I'm watching Rick and Morty. I was going to say Rick and Morty is pretty great and all that. But in terms of it's better than a lot of like scripted adult dramas, you know, or, or you know, richer or funnier than most 30 minute comedies that you're getting on television. Like it's so good. It's got genuine characters. It's funny. It's, uh, you know, well-paced. The jokes come nonstop. It's just so brilliant. And so I was going to rant a little bit more about, you know, The Simpsons, but I'm going to take a little bit of sidestep, and I'm going to just make a quick recommendation to this podcast I've been listening to. It's called Slow Burn. It's from Slate. And basically it is a political podcast that is going through these very small kind of forgotten stories of Watergate. Because basically it's all about how Watergate was not this you know, month long story that, you know, had just happened all of a sudden. It was like spread out over years and it wasn't just one story. It was, you know, if you were following the thing, it, you know, it took a long time to get, you know, everything out there, everyone prosecuted to, for it to actually be a complete thing. So it's a nice reminder in, you know, years like now where we're, you know, seeing the current president being investigated. It's a nice reminder that like this does take time. And basically the show, tells these stories of uh, things that were happening that are these crazy, wild stories that you can't believe that aren't big deals in history, but they just kind of got swept under the rug of time. And, you know, but they're really interesting, really fascinating bits of true story. They're really quick, like 25-minute episodes. You know, I can't recommend that podcast enough. So that's all I wanted to throw out there. Cool. Yeah, I feel like uh, Mueller's investigation is actually moving... Pretty fast. A lot faster than Watergate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, that's where I'm at for the week. Um, You know, we're going to meet again. We're going to review some more movies. We're going to talk some more music. And, you know, we've got a lot of episodes planned, so I'm excited to do them. Yeah, absolutely. I am. It is uh, 7.30 on Wednesday night. I am about to meet two friends right now once I hang up. We're going to go see A Quiet Place. So we can discuss that soon. I've already seen it. Because I know Phil's already seen it. Yeah, I've already seen it. I'm very excited to discuss. So we'll do that uh, maybe next time we sit down. For sure, my man. That's the show for this week. Before we go, we wanted to please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every one of those helps us out incredibly. It helps us get the word out for the show and helps more people find us. So we really need your help to do that. If you are listening and like the show, please help that way. I want to thank rate uh, and subscribe. Please, please, please give us five stars. We really want it. Please. Yeah, only give us five stars. If you're going to give us a bad review, you know, fuck off. We don't want that. Yeah, I had a friend who said, I'm going to listen to your first episode and give you my honest feedback. And then he did. He said, I really like it. I'm giving you guys four stars. I said, hey, man, you're a personal friend. Fuck you. Bump it up to five. Yeah, come on now. Come on. <laughs> give <laughs> give, did, give us did. five stars. If you give us five stars, we will be your personal friend. Yeah, you will be my, my best friend. I will, I will be there for you. I want to thank Zach Pitts for the theme music, our intro and out, outro music. That was, you know, a big... Big gift from him. We want to thank him. And uh, if you want to find us on Twitter, Tom can be found at Big Fat Bond. That's all one word. And I'm at Phil Wiedenhef. You can find the spelling in the show description in the show notes. So look for us there. Tweet at us. Send us, uh, you know, pictures, info, whatever you want to do. You know, seek us out. Find us. Reach out. Reach out and touch faith. Touch us. Love us. We will love you back. This is all for you. We just want to be loved. All right. Cool. All right. Well, Tom, you go enjoy that movie. We'll uh, we'll talk later. Thanks, buddy. Love you, everybody. Bye.